conclude my case against Galileo. This is the final episode on this subject. And I have here a little anecdote that I found that can be used to uh, encapsulate or, or frame my overall conclusion. Uh, it goes like this. Galileo was sentenced by the church in uh, 1633, of course. And so uh, as a consequence of that, there was a sort of crackdown on uh, Galileo sympathizers, an unfavorable climate for, for Galileo supporters at that in the immediate aftermath, of course. As for, so, for instance, somebody in Florence was trying to publish a book that made reference to the most distinguished Galileo. Uh, that was the phrase. But then the Inquisition uh, intervened. Uh, you know, they had the censorship power. And so they demanded that uh, instead, the, the, that this phrase uh, needed to be changed, they said. Instead of the most distinguished Galileo, the author should say, Galileo, man of noted name. And so it, uh, it's a pretty good one, really. Uh, a, a nice way of eliminating a judgment, but still you know, conceding the, the fame of, of Galileo. So I'm not usually on the side of uh, the, the Inquisition, you know, but on this point, really, that, that, that one decree, uh, it's a pretty good one. And we could even uh, apply it still to this day. Instead of Galileo, father of modern science, we should all just say Galileo, man of noted name. He is indeed famous, but uh, there's little substance to back up that uh, that fame, that notoriety. So that has been my overall uh, point. You know. So today I will offer a bit of a roundup and along with some new perspectives to uh, to frame this overall uh, th- those overall conclusions. It's, it will be the end then of my 18-episode uh, rant against Galileo. We will move on to other subjects after that. Let's see now. So, in summary, my main claim has been that Galileo was a poor mathematician. This is uh, I try to emphasize uh, the, the, uh, this mathematical point of view, which I think has been sadly neg- neglected. You know, uh, there are many shortcomings of Galileo that have been recognized by many people individually. The particular errors that he has made. But uh, there has been a lack of uh, synthesis, putting all of these together as stemming from the root cause of mathematical incompetence. This has been a point that I've emphasized, which I believe uh, no one else has uh, uh, recognized before. So that has been my overall point. Uh, historians, in fact, are still blind to the you know, how bad of a mathematician Galileo was. People speak of Galileo's mathematical genius. It's a phrase that I've taken from one... Uh, book, people just take that for granted. You know, it was Galileo's mathematical genius that led him, enabled him to blah, blah, blah. You know, you can just uh, take those things for granted as a matter of course that Galileo had met, possessed mathematical genius. And this is a myth that must uh, die. It is high time for that to uh, not be an acceptable uh, assumption anymore. Uh, so, to take another specific example, we have John Harnbron, very prominent. Uh, historian, uh, UC Berkeley historian of science. He published an authoritative uh, biography of Galileo in 2010, a major book. And uh, in that work, Galileo is called the greatest mathematician in Italy and perhaps the world at the, in, in his day. You know, that's the opinion of Jon Heibron, the UC Berkeley historian, So, it, it, which is incorrect. So it is time that we uh, correct these things. Galileo was no such thing. He was absolutely not the greatest uh, mathematician, even in Italy, let alone the world. You know, Cavalieri, Torricelli, 
in, in Italy were way, way, way uh, beyond him in mathematical ability. Telltale signs of mathematical mediocrity permeate all of Galileo's works. Many pages of Galileo's uh, writings would not be out of place somewhere in the middle of the slipshod uh, student homework that uh, some of us grade for a living. Through this experience, I have come to recognize these kinds of signs and uh, I see them again in the works of Galileo. A number of Galileo's uh, numerous uh, mathematical errors even concern his core achievements. I have gone through all of his notable uh, scientific contributions and I have found plenty to object to in every uh, single case. Just to, to name a few examples, and Galileo uses his law of fall, so called, you know, the, the, the law of fall that we're supposed to attribute to, to uh, give Galileo great credit for discovering that very law, he applies erroneously on a number of occasions. For instance, when he tries to explain the orbital speeds of the planets, uh, and then when he tries to explain or calculate how long it would take for the moon to fall to the earth, and likewise when he erroneously claims to have proved with a geometrical demonstration that centrifugal uh, whirling, the spinning of the, of the Earth, could never throw objects off the Earth, regardless of the speed of rotation. And likewise, again, he erroneously describes the path of a falling object in a reference frame uh, not rotating with the Earth. He says it's a semicircle, but it's actually a spiral, and so on. All of these things. Galileo is praised for having discovered the law of fall. The fact of the matter is that he derived as many false conclusions from this law as, as correct ones. He is also not infrequently uh, presents arguments that are demonstrably inconsistent with his own core beliefs. For instance, his tidal theory contradicts his own principle of relativity, which is also supposed to be celebrated for Galilean relativity. You know, it's a terminology that's still used in physics textbooks today. Well, the fact of the matter is that Galileo's own theory is blatantly inconsistent with this, as we had seen before. And uh, you have also his argument, the Joshua argument, the biblical argument, contradicts his own principle of inertia, obviously. This, the, the, the interpretation of the sun standing still in the Bible, that passage. Once again, Galileo contradicting his own core beliefs. And likewise, his objection to the geocentric uh, explanation of sunspots uh, that he gives is, in fact, inconsistent with his own belief. In heliocentrism, he's refuting a Ptolemaic point of view only by actually arguments that, if true, would also refute uh, actually the correct theory, the heliocentric theory that he himself supposedly believes. So these are striking situations where, in fact, those very key core principles that we are supposed to say that the Galileo's great achievements consist in, uh, that he is striking how he manages to be inconsistent with those very core beliefs in a number of arguments that he gives. So, okay, Galileo made many mistakes, but yes, everybody makes mistakes, you know. It was the early days of science, you know, maybe you shouldn't, uh, if we compare Galileo with other people, well, they also made mistakes. Uh, so, what if everybody has such a comedy of errors uh, to their name as Galileo does? Well, suppose that was the case. Even so, then, that would still prove my point that Galileo was a dime a dozen scientist, not at all a singular father of modern science. Uh, so, in fact, I do not need to concede 
that much uh, to begin with because the, the, the errors, uh, you know, Galileo's sum of errors are absolutely not par for the course. They are just exceptionally poor. In matters of mathematics especially, they're just astonishing. It's clear that Galileo was just nowhere near the mathematical ability of uh, dozens of uh, the most competent mathematicians among his contemporaries. And indeed, we have seen time and time again that virtually all of Galileo's achievements, so-called Galileo's achievements, were either uh, anticipated or at least made independently by others. And uh, here's just the most striking case. Let me quote here a nice summary of this uh, point from uh, from, uh, leading scholarship. Quote, let us hypothetically assume that the scholar contemporary to Galileo pursued experiments with falling bodies and discovered a law of fall as well as the parabolic shape of the projectile uh, trajectory, that he found the law of the inclined plane, directed the newly invented telescope to the heavens and discovered mountains on the moon. He observed moons of the planet Jupiter and sunspots. That he also calculated the, the orbits of heavenly bodies using methods and data of Kepler, with whom he corresponded, and that he composed extensive notes dealing with all of these issues. In short, let us assume that this man made essentially the same discoveries as Galileo and did his research in precisely the same way, with only one qualification. He never in his life published a single line of it. As a matter of fact, the above description refers to a real person, Thomas Harriot. That's the end of this quotation that, that puts it in a nutshell. Indeed, Harriot is second Galileo. You know, he did everything. It just goes to show how unremarkable uh, the Galilean achievement is, how uh, pedestrian and commonplace you, know, you have other people duplicated it down to the letter. Actually, these discoveries uh, that are described in these pages, the ones of Thomas Harriot, they are not identical with those of Galileo. Actually, they are better. They go beyond what Galileo did. Galileo never calculated the orbits of heavenly bodies using methods and data of Kepler, as Harriot did, as I just quoted. Harriot did this because he was a better mathematician. So the the history of science would have been much the same without Galileo. People like Harriot and and, uh, and several others were doing all of that stuff independently. Anyway, Harriot didn't take uh, any of these things from Galileo. It just uh, made sense for mathematically competent people to, to reach those kinds of conclusions. It was all over the place. It's instructive to compare Galileo to Kepler in these kinds of terms. So we can find the independent contemporaries' dis- discoveries for almost everything that uh, that Galileo did. Not so for Kepler's achievement, though, even though many of them are still central in modern science, you know, the laws of Kepler, etc. Harriot was a second Galileo. You can go on to a third or a fourth stand-in uh, without much loss at all. It would be much harder to find a second Kepler. There is nobody even near uh, that level. And in my view, it's not hard to see why. Kepler was an excellent mathematician. He worked on very difficult things and did extremely sophisticated mathematics, while Galileo didn't know much mathematics, hardly any, in fact, and therefore focused on much easier tasks, uh, much easier for others to likewise arrive at without too much effort. The standard story has it, of course, that Galileo's insights, they were more conceptual and yet somehow they were supposed to be at least as deep as technical mathematics. But on this account, this uh, imagined that, uh, you know, 
basic conceptions of science that were once commonsensical, that we think are commonsensical, they were once far from obvious. Like, the, the, so uh, it's, it's just anachronism that we don't understand the greatness of Galileo. We underestimate the magnitude of the conceptual breakthroughs required for these developments. We are biased by modern education, anachronistic perspective. That's how historians would like to frame it. To, to If you want to preserve Galileo's greatness, you have to think in those kinds of terms. But if that framing is correct, how come then that Galileo's ideas for all their alleged conceptual avant-gardism spontaneously sprung up like mushrooms all over Europe at the same time, people like Harriet, etc. And how come that all of those uh, ideas these elementary principles of scientific method that, that Galileo advocated and so on, the basic ideas for uh, arguing for illocentrism and so on, all of that stuff can easily be explained to any high school student today. How can that be then if they are so profound, so advanced, so conceptually sophisticated, such a revolutionary perspective and so on? The same cannot be said for Kepler's ideas, you know. They were neither simultaneously developed by dozens of scientists, nor can they be taught to a modern student without years of specialized training. Extremely sophisticated stuff, you know, astronomy and all it's just very advanced mathematics, the stuff that Kepler did. And perhaps this contrast between Galileo and Kepler says something about what genuine depth looks like in the mathematical sciences. That would be my claim. In my opinion, mathematicians at the time, they realized all of this perfectly well. I have already spoken before about this. I've quoted at some length the very harsh words that uh, Descartes and also quite often Kepler had for Galileo. He's eloquent to refute Aristotle, but that is not hard, as Descartes said. There are plenty of quotes like that from mathematicians at the time, contemporary judgments of Galileo. And of course, uh, these people spotted numerous mathematical blunders in Galileo, you know, which they condemned. We have spoken about this at length and seen many examples Let's see now at some other uh, competent mathematicians what they thought of Galileo, people I haven't mentioned uh, yet in that respect. Christian Huygens, let's have a look at him. He was perhaps the greatest physicist and mathematician of the generation uh, between uh, Galileo and Newton. Excellent position to judge, in other words. So he is often portrayed as continuing the scientific program of Galileo. Huygens' collected works is consists of 22 very thick uh, volumes. Why don't you go ahead and try to find any strong praise of Galileo anywhere in those 22 volumes, let alone anything remotely like calling him a father of science or anything of that nature. Somehow, Huygens, he never quite got around to saying that, you know, in those uh, tens of thousands of pages on physics and mathematics and astronomy that he wrote. Uh, well, what a mystery, don't you think? The closest uh, Huygens ever gets to mentioning Galileo favorably is in the context of uh, critique of Cartesianism. So in the late 17th century, the teachings of Descartes had attracted a very strong following. In the eyes of many mathematicians, the, the way uh, Cartesianism had become in, an entrenched belief system was uncomfortably similar to how Aristotelianism had been an all-too-dominant dogma in centuries before. And so Huygens indeed made this parallel explicitly. I quote him here. This is Christian Huygens now. Descartes had a great desire to be regarded as the author of a new philosophy, and it appears that he wished to have it taught in the academies in place of Aristotle. Descartes should have 
proposed his system of physics as an essay on what can be said with probability. That would have been admirable. But in wishing to be thought to have found the truth, he has done something which is a great detriment to the progress of philosophy. For those who believe him and those who have become his disciples imagine themselves to possess an understanding of the causes of everything that is possible to know. In this way, they often lose time in uh, supporting the teachings of their master and not studying enough to fathom the true reasons of uh, this great number of phenomena which Descartes had only spread uh, idle fancies. That's the end of this quote where Hawkins then is condemning the uh, dogmatic nature of uh, the, the followers of Descartes, also perhaps indeed the intent of Descartes, who was not a very humble person, to achieve such a status. So it is in direct contrast with this that Christian Hawkins lets slip a few kind words for Galileo. And here's what he says, quote, Galileo had neither the audacity nor the vanity to wish to be the head of a sect. He was modest and loved the truth too much. That's the end of the quote from Christian Hawkins. So historians have observed that uh, probably Hawkins here is no likelihood quite consciously intended this passage to apply to himself as much as to Galileo. He's obviously presenting the view, the, the point of view that he represents. And perhaps this is why Hawkins is surely too generous in praising Galileo's alleged modesty when Galileo was anything but modest, obviously, that we have seen that in, in great detail. Well, in any case, it is very interesting to see that uh, what Hawkins actually says then about uh, Galileo's actual science in, in this passage in the following sentences of this uh, uh, this passage that I started reading. So let's read the rest of it, and let us keep in mind that this is as close as Hawkins ever gets to praising Galileo, and that the context of this passage, which is a scathing condemnation of Cartesianism, gives Hawkins a notable incentive to put Galileo's scientific achievements in the most positive terms, for, for the sake of contrast, in order to show how bad Descartes was. He wants to heighten uh, Galileo. With this in mind, I think the, the supposed praise for Galileo that Hawkins offers here is actually more remarkable for how, how qualified it is, how restrained it is. Hawkins actually does not go very far at all, despite having all of this, despite the context pushing him to put Galileo on a pedestal. Despite it, he strongly resist, you know, refrains from saying almost anything quite positive at all. Or so I read it. Let's, uh, I'll read his words and you can judge for yourself. Here is how, how the passage begins. Quote, Galileo had, in spirit and awareness of mathematics, all that is needed to make progress in physics. Let's, let's stop the quote there for a moment and, and reflect on that. Isn't that a very interesting phrasing that Huygens uses here? He seems to be saying, Galileo, he said all the right things about mathematics and scientific method, but he didn't actually carry through on those things. Uh, so given Galileo's rhetoric, he ought to have been able to do it, but he didn't really. That's what Huygens seems to be saying, you know. So it is interesting that Huygens doesn't say that Galileo had great mathematical ability or actually demonstrable achievements. He only says Galileo was aware that mathematics is necessary in physics. And in this respect, Galileo had all that is needed to make progress in physics. Those are Huygens is the word. Why not simply say that Galileo made great progress in physics instead of this very convoluted uh, qualified, well, he had what was needed to do so, right? 
So clearly, Hauke's ostensible praise for Galileo is really quite backhanded. That's how it seems to me anyway. You know, So instead of saying Galileo made great progress in physics, he just says, well, he ought to have been able to make great progress in physics because he understood that mathematics was important. You know, so that's it's a very qualified, very very uh, unflattering formulation that Hauke uses, in my opinion. But well, let's continue reading though, because the Hauke's quote goes on further than this. And here's the rest of the sentence: "And one has to admit that he was the first to make very beautiful discoveries concerning the nature of motion." That's that's Hauke's again. So, well, Galileo wasn't the first. First of all, that's we know that now. Anyway, Harkins didn't know that. He didn't know about the unpublished works of, of uh, Thomas Harriot, etc., etc. So, so Harkins is too generous. But anyway, never mind that. Uh, putting that aside, Harkins' formulation is still very restrained in an interesting way. Did you notice uh, that strange phrase, one has to admit? Ha! Huh. One has to admit that Galileo was the first to make certain discoveries. Who speaks that way of their greatest hero, you know? One has to admit that he made some discoveries. That sounds more like the kind of phrasing you use to describe the work of someone who is overrated, not someone you esteem as uh, the founder of science, you know? Hawkins wrote this stuff in French, and the, the phrase is il faut avouer. So I'm not a linguist, but I think the translation I gave is the most natural one. Il faut avouer, one has to admit, it, it, the phrasing suggests a, a reluctance, you know, to concede the point. So I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's possible to argue that taken in context, it, it could also be uh, possibly construed as something like even a Cartesian would have to admit or, or something like that. If you happen to be an expert on 17th century French, you know, I would love to hear your opinion about this. Please contact me. Well, in any case, if so, if we stick with this translation that I think um, is indeed uh, very natural, then uh, it is just very, very striking, isn't it, that, that Hauken says that one has to admit that Galileo discovered a few things, you know. Huh. Actually, uh, this Hauken's quote continues even further. So let's continue reading. Here's how the... The thing concludes, after the remark about Galileo having made uh, certain discoveries concerning motion, Hauges adds his final remark, which is, although he left very considerable things to be done. That's how Hauges concludes. And, well, yes, you know, he's absolutely right. That's my point exactly. So uh, what is most striking and remarkable at the work of Galileo is not the few discoveries that he admittedly made, but how very little he actually accomplished, despite all his posturing about mathematics and scientific method. So it seems to me that Hauges and I basically agree on this point. If you read between the lines what Hauges is saying, you know, why would he, uh, why would he uh, stop to emphasize at this point that, oh, he left very considerable things to be done? It's, it's not really taking into account the context and so on. Why, why does he uh, feel the need to, to make that uh, emphasis there, Christian Hauges? So even in this, the most pro-Galilean sentence in all the thousands of pages of Hauke's works, that Hauke's is, in fact, directly undermining Galileo as much as he's praising him with several formulations that suggest distancing himself or uh, qualifying his praise for Galileo at every turn. So that's Christian Hauke's. Now, what about Isaac Newton? What did he think of Galileo? 
So we all know that Newton famously said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. It's a famous quote. So uh, many people, of course, take for granted that uh, Galileo must have been one of those giants on shoulders, uh, on whose shoulders Newton stood. I found one scholarly uh, work that uh, even proposes to explain this. Uh, when Newton credits Galileo with being one of the giants on whose shoulders he stood, he means blah, blah, blah. Look, that's, uh, that's a quote from a... From a respect to scholarship. You know, we don't have to listen to what this philosopher thinks that Newton meant, because uh, the first part of the sentence is false already. The assumption that Galileo was one of these scientific giants uh, in question has absolutely no basis in fact. There's not just nothing in Newton's work that suggests that he thought of Galileo in those kinds of terms. The, the closest Newton ever gets to praising Galileo is in the Principia, his most important uh, work. After introducing his laws of motion, Newton adds some notes on uh, the, the history of these laws. Here's what he writes. Uh, the principles I have set forth are accepted by mathematicians and confirmed by experiments of many kinds. By means of the first two laws and the first two corollaries, Galileo found that the descent of heavy bodies is in the squared ratio of the time and that the motions of projectiles occur in a parabola. So the, the, the laws and corollaries that Newton are talking about here are the law of inertia, which Galileo did not know, as we have demonstrated at length. And then Newton's second law, the fourth law, force equals maximum acceleration, which Galileo also did not know, not even close. And then there's the, the composition of forces and motions. This is a trivial fact that was known in antiquity. The, you know, addition law for forces, force vectors and stuff like that. It is interesting that Newton doesn't say that Galileo was the discoverer of these laws. He only says that Galileo used these laws to find the path of projectiles. And indeed, uh, one historian has pointed out, Newton's Latin contains interesting ambiguity, for it can have two completely different meanings. Either that the laws were accepted by Galileo before he found that projectiles follow a parabolic path, or that the laws were already generally accepted by scientists overall, at that time, and Galileo, before the moment that Galileo discovered a thing about uh, parabolas. Well, either way, Newton is wrong. Of course, once you're looking at the world through Newtonian mechanics, it's natural to think that surely Galileo must have known these laws, because uh, that's so obviously the right way to think about parabolic motion. Therefore, as uh, Dijkstra has uh, says, according to the myth in which he appears as the founder of classical dynamics, Galileo must surely have known the proportionality of force and acceleration. But to those who have become acquainted with Galileo through his own works, not at second hand, there can be no doubt that he never possessed this insight. Indeed, uh, quite so. And so uh, Dijksterhaus is exactly right, of course. In fact, Newton was not acquainted with Galileo's works directly. And as I.B. Cohen says, the famous historian, Newton scholar, says that uh, Newton almost certainly did not read Galileo's Discourse until some considerable time after he had already published the Principia, if in fact he even read it at all at any point in time. There's no evidence even of that. So it is true that early uh, in his scientific career, Newton had read the Dialogue of Galileo, the Dialogue which is his work on Copernicanism, so not the work on mechanics, not the work that has anything to do with loss of motion, which is what Newton is referencing here in the Principia, all the stuff about parabolas and so on. That's in the Discourse, the work that Newton definitely had not read before he 
he wrote to Principia, perhaps never read at all, quite plausibly. So in the Principia, Newton wrote it too generously for once, allowed Galileo the discovery of these uh, uh, laws of motion. He gave too much credit to Galileo, as, as is recognized in scholarship by historians, that that was uh, overly generous. The reason for Newton's excessive uh, charity is not hard to divine. So we can quote I.B. Cohen again. Newton's Principia is marked by an obvious and vehement anti-Cartesian bias. Because of his strongly anti-Cartesian position, Newton might have preferred to think of Galileo rather than Descartes as the originator of the first law, the law of inertia. Whereas in point of fact, the prima lex, that is to say the law of inertia of Newton's Principia, was derived directly from the prima lex of Descartes' Principia, that is the correct law of inertia, which Descartes stated. He stated the correct law of inertia with crystal clarity in his published key work, while Galileo never stated it anywhere, nor even believed it uh, implicitly. So clearly then, Newton's attribution of these laws to Galileo means next to nothing. Galileo demonstrably did not know these laws. Newton hadn't read Galileo anyway, and Newton had an obvious bias and an incentive to overstate Galileo's importance in order to belittle the influence of Descartes, which he did not want to admit for independent reasons. But, But there's more. Newton's works are not high praise for Galileo Anyway, quite aside from all these arguments I just gave, it becomes even clearer that Newton has not so much respect for Galileo. If we we continue Newton's text, read the rest of the page in the Principia. Uh, When Newton continues his historical discussion about the the background of uh, the the evolution of mechanics before the Principia, he says on the very same page where he mentioned Galileo, he says, Sir Christopher Wren, Dr. John Wallace and Mr. Christian Huygens Easily the foremost geometers of the previous generation independently found the rules of the rules of the collisions and reflections of hard bodies. That's a quote from Newton. So evidently Newton was in the mood when writing this to point out who were the foremost geometers uh, of the past. So he takes the time to accord that distinction to certain of his contemporaries like Wallace and Huygens, but on the very same page he had no such words for Galileo. Well, that's quite a telling omission. Why didn't you stop to say, oh, Galileo was the greatest something-something or the creator of science, the first to do science, the first to apply mathematics? Nothing, you know? Instead, you are praising Wallace and Hauch as proper mathematicians to say, well, those guys, they knew what they were doing. They were the foremost geometrists. So why not say that about Galileo then, if he believes it? Well, quite possibly because Newton... uh, understood that Galileo was a crap mathematician. Altogether, there is no evidence anywhere that Newton regarded uh, Galileo particularly highly, let alone that he considered him anywhere near a father of modern science. So, that's what I wanted to say regarding the opinion of mathematicians of Galileo. So, uh, I'm going to try to wrap up my Galileo story here. Here's another way of putting it to the, the point, my, my overall uh, uh, conclusion on Galileo, you know. So, say you go to the library. You go to the shelves that has the philosophical texts uh, ordered uh, chronologically. It uh, starts with the Greeks and it goes all the way to more. 
So you pick up the books one by one. You see what they have to say about science. Well, you will find that century after century is the same thing. Aristotle, Aristotle, Aristotle. Then commentaries on Aristotle. Then commentaries on commentaries on Aristotle. Then the people ostensibly try to think more independently, yet they cling desperately to Aristotelian concepts, Aristotelian terminology, as if their life depended on it. Even when they try to challenge isolated claims of Aristotelian dogma, they still do so using the kinds of conceptual analysis that Aristotle uh, advocated. This is what you found for these thousands of years, from antiquity to the Renaissance. If, if you look up what philosophers have to say about science, this is basically all you found, completely dominated uh, by Aristotle all the way uh, through. Even departures from Aristotle are themselves Aristotelian in nature. Then, of course, suddenly Galileo. What a breath of uh, fresh air. So the Aristotelian shackles are emphatically discarded. All the nowadays familiar principles of modern science are articulated in lucid and entertaining prose, splendidly well written, really. In the work of uh, Galileo, very accessible dialogue format. At once, also, after Galileo, everyone is a scientist. Uh, everybody just takes for granted that science is the best way to understand nature, so a mathematical approach is necessary, and so on. All of that stuff, the generation after Galileo, all the philosophers agree on that point all of a sudden. So the Aristotelian that had run rampant for centuries had stopped dead in its tracks. There are no Aristotelians anymore. So how can one not admire this singular father of the scientific worldview, this pivotal hero who divides the entire history of thought into two disjoint worlds, separated by such an abyss? Galileo is the watershed divider between darkness and light. Look, uh, there's only one problem. You made a mistake because you went to the philosophy shelves. You thought that you were going to understand mankind's relation to the natural world by looking at what philosophers had said about science. Look, what you really should have done is you should have gone to sub-basement 3 of the library where the mathematics books are kept. So it may not have been such an obvious choice. You know, perhaps you yourself was educated in the humanities, or you're naturally drawn to those uh, sprawling, well-attended shelves in, the, in your part of the library there. This out-of-the-way mathematics section, it never caught anyone's eye. Isn't that just for nerds in training who need to double-check their formulas, something like that? Well, apparently there are a few books in the math section that are from Greek times, but, oh well, blink and you miss them, you know? between the thick modern textbook on algebraic topology, partial differential equations, whatever, stuff with a bunch of technicalities. So if you do open one of those old math books, it's full of technical diagrams and equations anyway. You know, who would ever think to look there for mankind's changing view of the, of the world and the universe? Surely that's what philosophy is all about. And it's philosophy that you should look for answers to those kinds of questions. No, actually, in reality... We sent Galileo to your shelves because he wasn't good enough for ours. Galileo wasn't the first to do anything except explain what mathematicians had always known in such basic terms that even philosophers could understand it. That is Galileo's contribution to the history of human thought. 
here's what Galileo himself wrote to a fellow philosopher at one point. Uh, quote, if philosophy that which is contained in Aristotle's books, you will be the best philosopher in the world. But the book of natural philosophy, that is to say of science, is that which is perpetually open to our eyes. The being written in characters very different from those of our alphabet, it cannot be read by everyone. The characters of this book are triangles, squares, circles, spheres, cones, pyramids, and other mathematical figures, the most suited for this sort of reading. That's the end of this quote from Galileo. That's Galileo's advice to the philosophers of his day. I say much the same thing to modern scholars. If the history of science is that which is contained in philosophical books, then you will be the best historians in the world. However, the real truth is perpetually open to our eyes, if only we would take the trouble to read mathematical works. That has been the point that I wanted to make uh, with my uh, extended case against Galileo. Thank you.